And so we are going to turn into uh, the scriptures, which is the word of our friend. And Lord willing, God will speak to us today more so than me. Pray that God speaks to my own heart today as we look into his word. So uh, all who have ears to hear, let them hear and turn to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, we are looking at beginning actually with chapter 9, verse 35. I'm going to read a couple portions of this text. Let's start with 9.35. You all there? All right, Tony, when you get there, let me know, all right? Everybody else there? We got it? We good? Matthew 9.35? Everybody say Matthew 9.35. Here we go. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to them, to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Skip to verse 16, chapter 10, verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the, and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak, what you're to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Verse 31, chapter 10, verse 31. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. uh, Verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me, him who who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, 
he will by no means lose his reward. Let's pray and ask God to speak to us this morning. Father, we do ask that the Holy Spirit move in our hearts in such a way that you wake us up to the truths that are in this text, uh, that you might convict us of the many times that we seek to uh, embrace comfort uh, over conviction, ways that we seek to embrace uh, popularity over persecution. And we do ask that we would be, uh, as a result of your word, encouraged to give our lives for Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. And everybody said? Amen. The, uh, the Nicene Creed, which we read this morning, by the time it was edited for the second time, there was a, a man named Eusebius. Everybody say Eusebius. Eusebius. Eusebius was a historian of the early church, one of the first and earliest historians. The document that contained the creed which we read was given to Eusebius to hold. Now, there were those who despised the document and despised Eusebius and others who were embracing this idea that Jesus Christ is God. And so the emperor, who just simply could not take this idea that Jesus Christ is God, demanded that Eusebius give him the document that contained the creed. Eusebius refused to give him the document. The emperor then said, I will cut off your hands if you don't give us the document. And Eusebius said, strike. For the next number, uh, couple of years, Eusebius went into Syria, into Phoenicia, into Palestine, encouraging the persecuted church, the church that, were cling, that was clinging to these cent- central and basic truths of the Scriptures, that Jesus Christ is indeed of the very same nature as God, and He is indeed our only hope. I want to talk to you today about, about persecution. Here's the, the premise, the entire premise of this text and my sermon today, and that is this. Persecution, if you are a Christian, persecution will come. All right? Not might. We often think persecution might come if you are a Christian. Persecution. What? Persecution will come, but Jesus is worth it. That's really the whole premise here this morning. But I want you to walk away with persecution and your life will come, but Jesus is worth it. Often when we think of the suffering of Jesus Christ, we, we think of simply the end of His life. We think of the agonies on the cross. We think of the nails in His feet and hands. We think of the whip on His back. The Good Friday picture comes to our mind. But the reality is this, it's not just the cross that brought suffering into the life of Jesus, but rather the whole of Jesus' life was a life of suffering. Not just the end, but the whole of Jesus' life was the life of suffering. Think with me for a moment. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, taking on the form of a servant, living the servant life. The holy Not a holy person, but the holy. Like the one whom we define holiness. 
chopping it up with sinners, living among wolves, broken, speaking of the wolves, despised and rejected by his own, persecuted, hated. His enemies against him Temptation from Satan, more agonizing than any temptation you have ever faced. I don't know if you realize this, but it's not those that give in to temptation that hurt. It's those that resist temptation. Those are the ones that feel pain in the moment. It's painful to resist temptation. Jesus resisted temptation more than you can imagine. Loneliness. You think you're lonely sometimes. You feel like you're walking alone sometimes. Jesus was the one who tread the wine press by himself. Who could really relate to Jesus? You know, we sit around and whine like, I just don't feel like anybody can relate to me. I just don't feel like anybody really can. Nobody gets it. Nobody really gets me. I think Jesus has 100% claim to that one. Loneliness. Responsibility. I sometimes feel like I'm just crushed under the weight of my own responsibility. Father, being a pastor, doing the things that I do. Think of the responsibility that Jesus had. It makes your sort of like trying to make ends meet working one and a half jobs pale. Like the Savior of the world. The only hope for humanity. Look, Jesus lived an entire life of giving himself away. An entire life of suffering was his. Now check this out. We are called to be like Jesus. We are called to now become one with Christ. Being a Christian is becoming one with Jesus. What does that mean for us? Well, first, let's think about what it meant for Jesus. A young man I was sharing the gospel with this last week, and so we're going through the gospel of Mark, and, uh, and we're talking about the cross, and he says, you know, the very fact that Jesus, uh, his own people denied him and hated him and rejected him and killed him, doesn't that indicate that maybe Jesus wasn't isn't the person we ought to be looking to? Like, maybe that indicates that Jesus was not really God in the flesh. Otherwise, he would have been accepted, right? My answer to him was, it's actually the, the reverse that's true. If what the Bible says is true, and if God is a holy, like an infinitely holy God, and humans are desperately wicked, God in the flesh among humans, that's a clash, No, it's the very fact that he was rejected by humans. It's the very fact that he was despised and killed. This is what this is what lifts him up. This is what shows us. This is what this is his evidence, if you would, that he is God. And then we look at ourselves. Well, if I'm a Christian, shouldn't things be going well in my life? Shouldn't I just be sort of progressing through the workplace, making a lot of good money, health, everybody's alive around me, right? If, I, if, if God is on my side. No, it's actually the reverse. That's the truth. 
When you have suffering in your life, when there is persecution, when you are despised and rejected for the sake of Christ, that is evidence that you're a Christian. So I want to talk to you today on this theme. Endure persecution. Endure persecution. You must endure persecution. Why? Because Jesus is worth it. We see this text, and uh, the text actually begins with a, uh, a look at the crowds. So before Jesus starts talking about persecution and suffering, he starts talking about the crowds. Why is persecution worth it? Well, first, it's for the sake of the crowds. Look at the crowds. There was a buffalo man uh, who, who uh, this past February, his name is Demetrius, and his whole house was engulfed in flames. And he was able to get out of the house, and then he realized that his eight-year-old and his three-year-old are still trapped in the blaze. What would you do, parent? He went right back in. He rescued his eight-year-old daughter, badly burned. The three-year-old was still not found. He went back in to find the three-year-old, and Demetrius would never come out again. But he saved the three-year-old in the process. He carried this boy and, and dropped him right at the edge of the house where Demetrius fell dead. Listen, why was the suffering worth it for Demetrius? Like, even if he, even if he knew what was going to happen, even if he knew, like, you're going to lose your life if you do this. You're going to suffer and die. I think any loving parent would still run back into the building, if at all possible. Why? Why is it that Jesus, before he talks about the suffering and the persecution that's going to come, why is it that Jesus first focuses our attention on the crowds? It's because it's worth it. Jesus is looking at the crowds who are following him, and I believe his heart breaks for the crowds. He pities them. Let me just show you some of the words that he uses as he describes the people that he's looking at, possibly with tears in his own eyes. He says, verse 36, he says that they are harassed. Harassed probably by the Pharisees, by the religious teachers who are placing burdens on them, who are telling them that, that they must follow the law in order to have righteousness, that they must do all of these additional requirements and these additional things. They're harassed by the religious leaders, probably made to feel like they have no part in the kingdom of God because they just simply can't do enough. They're sinners. They're harassed. He says they're helpless. And that's right, they are. Because anybody who is, has embraced a self-righteous kind of mentality, anybody who has been harassed in that way and guilt has been placed upon them, has no Savior. They have no hope. They are absolutely helpless. They cannot save themselves. They are indeed sinners. They otherwise have no part in the kingdom of God. They need help. He says they are like sheep without a shepherd. I know none of us are shepherds in the house, uh, unless maybe you are. I'll let you speak. But I've heard that she uh, sheep wander. 
They scatter when there's no shepherd to, to watch them. Sheep will see that grass is greener in the next yard, and they'll go across, and they'll start grazing in that field, and then they'll see that the grass is greener in the next field, and they go over, and they start grazing in that field, and pretty soon they've grazed themselves into a pack of wolves. No, sheep need a shepherd. And so as Jesus is seeing the crowds, he sees that they need to shepherd. They're, they're just wandering. They have no clue. They're like dumb sheep. And they're wandering into packs of wolves who are devouring them. Friends, does this not describe our city? What, is, what should break our hearts? What should tell us, look, persecution, Andrea, for you is worth it. Okay, it's worth it. Persecution is worth it. What are we looking at when we say that? We're looking at the crowds. We're looking at those who are helpless, those who are harassed, those who are like sheep without a shepherd. And so then Jesus turns and he says, let's, let's then pray. Notice before Jesus says go, he says pray. Don't just go. Pray that you get some help. Pray for workers. Where are the workers? The harvest is ready. Baltimore has a harvest. There are plenty of broken people in this city that need to hear the gospel. My question is this. With all of these churches, with all of these so-called Christians in the city, with our own church, where are the workers? Where are those who are going to the broken and speaking the good news of Jesus Christ? I'll tell you where some of them are. They're right here in this room. I love almost on a weekly basis hearing stories about how you're sharing the gospel with people. Just last week I heard of a, a young woman who was converted. And one of you played a role in her life. We need workers. We need to pray for workers. We need workers who are already working to keep working. Don't stop. Don't get frustrated. Don't get burned out. Don't say, I'm done. I'm tired. Keep working until you die. We need workers who have fallen asleep to wake up. And some of them might not even be here. As though we need to pray that they wake up to the job. We need workers who have yet to, yet to uh, find Christ to come out of the harvest. Some of the best workers are workers that come out of the harvest. That's our heartbeat as a church. All right, so with that said, here are the crowds. Now, the entire chapter 10, it, Jesus spends talking about persecution. Sort of like truth in advertising. It is so easy for us to, um, when we're inviting somebody to church or inviting somebody to come and explore Jesus or inviting somebody to believe the gospel, to sort of to believe that we have to give uh, in additional incentives other than Jesus. I've been guilty of this myself. You know, come to church, you'll get a bunch of new friends, you know, a lot of good people. Come on out, you're lonely. You know, get, find some friends. Incentives in addition to Jesus. Or maybe some, some forms of Christianity will say, if you come to Jesus, your business will get put back together and you will thrive and you will have prosperity. Additional incentives to follow Jesus that, uh, that have nothing to do with Jesus. Jesus actually doesn't really give many incentives, incentives at all other than himself. Jesus knows he is the only incentive. The invitation to follow Jesus right here is an invitation to come and die, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said. 
Imagine you were in the market for a new car, and you went to the car salesman at the local, what do you call these places? Car uh, dealers. Thank you. Dealerships. I can tell how many times I've been there. <laughs> Zero. Um, and, uh, and so the car uh, salesperson shows you this vehicle and puts you in it and says, hey, you want to take it for a spin? You're like, sure. He says, let me just tell you something about this car. Uh, as you drive down the road, everybody will laugh at you. As you drive down the road in this vehicle, people will point at you and will ridicule you and mock you. Go ahead and take it for a spin. So you take it for a spin, and sure enough, you're being ridiculed and mocked, and people are laughing at you for driving this car. How many of you are going to want to buy the car? Look, this is essentially what Jesus does. He, uh, he calls people to himself. He says, it's time to, to, to get some disciples. It's time to get some people around me. It's time to call some workers. I'm calling laborers. I'm calling people to follow me and to do what I do. And by the way, as you roll in this vehicle, you will be mocked, despised, laughed at, and rejected. I just want you to know that. If you're not a Christian today, there is no, no false advertisement in this church. Become a Christian, and you will be mocked. But Jesus is worth it. Is he? So let's look at the text. Um, so we're to follow him for the sake of the crowds, but we're to follow him in spite of the cost. Verses 2 through 4, we see here now the listing of the original 12 disciples who became the apostles and the foundation of the early church. Their names are listed there. Verses 9 through 15 and verses 40 through 42 tell us that there are going to be some, as these 12 go, there are going to be some who take care of them. There are going to be some who open their homes to them. Now listen, in the ancient world, uh, to host, to show hospitality to a king's messenger was a great opportunity. It was a wonderful privilege. And so there are going to be some, Jesus says, who as you come into their town, they're going to recognize that I am the king and that you are the messenger. And they're going to find it a privilege to take care of you. They're going to find it a great privilege to host you and show you hospitality. But then he goes on and he says, there are going to be others. Maybe more who reject you. What he shows us clearly is that if, we re if these reject the disciples, then they're actually rejecting the king. They're saying they are not of the king. They are not messengers of any king, no king of my life. And if they reject the king, Jesus says, they reject the one who sent him. Dust off your feet. And then here it is, look at verse 16. He says, I'm sending you as sheep into the midst of wolves. Listen, these 12 names that you see in verses 2 through 4 are 12 people who literally were sent before local councils. They were literally flogged. They were literally persecuted. They ended up dying horrible deaths. Jesus is not joking around here. 
I'm sending you, you have to understand, as sheep into the midst of wolves. But then he says, as you go, be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. How is this even possible? So let's just wrap, try to wrap our minds around this for just a moment. Dumb as sheep, wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Can somebody explain that for me? Oh, no. Um, come back next week. Montrell is actually preaching next Sunday. And uh, he's going to actually preach on chapter 10, verse 16. All right, so dumb as sheep, dumb as sheep, in the sense that they are going to go into the wolves. They're going into the middle of the wolf lair. They know that they are going into places of danger. They know that where they're going, they may die. They may be rejected. But they're as dumb as sheep. <laughs> they go anyway. And this is the life of the Christian. Our one sense we're as dumb as sheep. Christians for the last 2,000 years have gone to the most dangerous places in the world. Dumb as sheep. Going into tribes, cannibalistic tribes in South America. Dumb as sheep. We go anywhere. The whole concept of like, is it safe to live there? That should not be a question that ever comes out the mouth of a Christian. It really shouldn't. And some of us need to repent of that. I don't know. Is that block safe? What? Is that the question that Jesus wanted you to ask? No, we're dumb. We just go wherever we go and we go into the most, we find the darkest place and we go there. Amen? Amen? But yet, when we get there, we're as true to serpents. We're wise. Which means we don't do dumb stuff when we get there. Jesus, I think, is a model of this. He went into the pack of wolves, but yet he did not open his mouth so as not to incite a riot. We are wise as we live our lives. We don't do stupid stuff. We don't intentionally put ourselves in the way of harm. We don't intentionally try to do something that's going to get us hurt. And we're innocent as doves. We live lives, just regular 24-7 lives that commend the gospel. We're not sleeping around. We're not sharing our bed. We're giving we're loving, we're generous, we're sharing our tables, we're helping those within the church, we're even helping those outside of the church. We live lives so that nobody can pin anything on us. This is the kind of life that we, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, are called to live. Now let's get deeper into the wolf lair. Look at verse 21. Brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child. Children rise against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Look at verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above 
his master? Is it not enough, or is it enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master? If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will, you, will they malign those of his house? So what's he, what, is, what is he saying here? He's saying this. He's saying, look, uh, you are to become like me. I am master. You are the subject. You are the, you are the, the student. And a student is to become like their teacher. I don't know if any of you are teachers, but you know that that's the goal. Right, Megan? Bryn? That's the, that's the goal, that your students know what you know and do what you do. And as we follow Christ, we recognize that he was called Beelzebub, the previous chapter. That's what he's referring to. Remember, after, they cast, after he cast out some demons, they called him the devil. If they hate me, if they reject me, if they despise me, well, how much more do you think they're going to despise you? Brothers turning against each other. Parents turning against children. Children, children turning against their parents. Verse 34 and 35, Do not think I have come to bring peace to this earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Like this is heavy, intense stuff that we are dealing with here. Jesus is, he's, first of all, we might ask this question, well, isn't Jesus the king of peace? Isn't he the peacemaker? Isn't he the one who is bringing peace? And the, the answer is ultimately yes. Jesus is bringing peace. But temporarily, his very presence in the world brings the sword. Not that Jesus or his people are the instigators, but God, the holy God incarnate in the sinful world is quite a clash. And there will not be peace temporarily. Animals don't even turn against their own. Like, I've seen lions chasing gazelles. I can't remember a YouTube video where I saw a lion chasing after a lion. Maybe it's happened. I'm talking about like chasing them, not like during mating season, but like to devour them, all right? That kind of chasing. You know what I'm talking about. Even animals don't turn on their own. Look at the wolves that are being described here. Brothers and sisters, in-laws. You say, well, that was a given. Right? I'm just kidding. I love my in-laws. <laughs> Parents against children turning on their own because they cannot stand Christ. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. This is what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 37 right there, you've got to love me more than you love mom. There, you've got to love me more than you love anybody else because you might be rejected by them. What's the point of this? Let me summarize it for you. Number one, following Jesus brings persecution into your life. Following Jesus brings persecution into your life. Listen, the last time Jesus was publicly accepted on earth was before Adam and Eve took a bite 
We typically operate in this way. We typically cling to the gospel truths and we believe in Jesus and you know, we're pumped up by something we heard at church or by a song. And then we go into the world and we, we, we muster up the boldness to actually mention Jesus in a conversation. And as soon as we do, an individual that we highly respect mocks us rejects us or rejects Jesus and says, you know, how can you believe that this man in some way through the cross? And they just begin to mock you. What we typically do is this. We, we typically think something must be wrong with what I believe. I'm doubting now what I believe. We typically think whenever we are met with rejection, whenever somebody turns their back on us for the, for the sake of Christ, we typically react and think, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Jesus is wrong. Maybe I'm not as smart as I thought I was. Friends, it's not popularity that is evidence that you're a Christian. It's persecution. It's not esteem that is evidence that you're a Christian. It's exile. It's not riches that are evidence that you're a Christian. It's rejection. In the same way, as my friend earlier, I I talked about how he questions now Jesus' divinity because his people turned against him. We often question our own authenticity because people turn against us. Now, friends, that should only encourage you Christians will be persecuted. Now, let me be clear and very honest for a moment. We are not persecuted or rejected just simply because we're weird. That's not what he's talking about. Just simply because we like embrace 1950s traditions and try to force other people to do the same thing. Or we're not rejected just simply because we're mean and self-righteous. No, we're not re- that's not what Jesus is talking about. Like, you can hold up protest signs with Westboro Baptist Church, and granted, you will be rejected, but rightly you should. That's not what Jesus is talking about. What Jesus is talking about is being rejected from making disciples. That is when persecution will come. Remember, we're looking about, we're talking about the crowds, we're looking at the people. We're talking about going to, be, to make disciples of the lost. That's when rejection, that's when persecution comes. You might think to yourself, I don't have any persecution in my life. I might ask you a question. When was the last time you tried to make a disciple? The more you try to make disciples, the more you will be persecuted. Because as soon as you start talking about an authority that all must submit to, a king You are not the king of yourself. You are not your own authority. You don't just do things however you want to do them. There is a a law, and you've broken it. When you start talking about punishment for sin, like cosmic punishment for sin, when you start talking about the need for repentance to turn from your wicked ways and embrace the Savior, when you start talking about the need for a Savior, the need to humble oneself, to get on your knees, to recognize that your, even your best deeds are like dung. Listen, when you start talking these ways, that's when persecution comes. It could look like loneliness. 
rejection. For some, it could look like all-out war, violence possibly. This is why we must gather together every week to warm up by the fire of the Holy Spirit so that we might go back into the wolves. So that we might be reminded that what we believe is true and right and holy and good. So that we might endure persecution. Secondly, you must love Him more than anything. You must love Him more than than anything. Your spouse says she'll leave you because of Jesus. Let her leave. You can't leave Jesus. Your friend rejects you because of Jesus. Friends, you can't reject Jesus. Success, this idol of success that so many of us have. We're afraid, man, if I share Christ with my boss, what if I get demoted or worse? What if he ends up finding a way to fire me? Friends, you can't fire Jesus. You've got to love Jesus more than mother and father, more than brother and sister, more than best friend more than popularity, more than success. Jesus has to come first in your life. Now, how do we do this? How do we go out of this place and recognize that this week we might be persecuted? Here's how. We have in this text a sovereign security and a promise of eternal life. Let me just close with reading verses 26 through 30 to you. Look at verses 26 through 30 in chapter 10. He says this, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say it in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim it on the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. So fear not. Therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone that acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. You are infinitely more valuable than a sparrow. Think of a sparrow. How many sparrows right now do you think in this world are dying, falling to the ground dead? Probably quite a few. They they live short lives. They're little annoying birds. Like worthless little creatures. And not one sparrow falls dead without God's care for that sparrow. He's using this and he's saying, think of who you are. You might even have low self-esteem. Get over it, all right? Think about who you are. You know that you're more valuable than a sparrow. And if you're a Christian, you know that 
Christ died for your sins, that you are, that you are now kind of worthy of his death. God even knows the number of hairs on your head. Easy to count? Much harder to count, some of you. <laughs> but he knows all of us. So, friends, what do we have to fear? There is not a boss that will reject you without the care of Christ for you. There is not a person, a, a best friend, that will turn their back on you, a spouse that will leave. There is not a person that will seek to harm you or malign you or gossip about you or uh, slander you outside of God's sovereign care for you. All things work together for good to them who love God. There is nothing that will happen in your life that is not part of God's purposes for you. There is nothing that God will take away from your life outside of His purposes for you. You have nothing to fear. And all who publicly embrace Christ, Jesus says, you're mine. I embrace all of these publicly before the Father. Whoever loses their life in this present age, meaning whoever follows Jesus, whoever decides to follow Christ, whoever hears His voice, their heart is opened. They see the cross. They follow Him. Every single one of them loses their life in this present age. But everybody who loses their life in this era will receive eternal life. The emperor Valens, when he was trying to take that document from the historian Eusebius in the fourth century, he threatened Eusebius with confiscation, with torture, with banishment, and even with death. Eusebius said this. I wrote it down. Listen to what Eusebius said to Emperor Valens. He said, the one who has nothing to lose needs not fear loss. Nor banishment to whom heaven is his country. He need not fear torments when his body can be destroyed. And he need not fear death, which is the only way to set him free from sin and sorrow. Following Jesus is to be united with Jesus in his life of suffering. It does mean persecution, but our eyes are focused on the crowds and we go to them, to the hardest and darkest places in this world, in our city, in your home. Sheep without shepherd, where are the workers? They're right here in this room. So let's disperse and let's get about his business. Amen? Father, we thank you for this time that we can come into this chapter of Matthew. We thank you for your word that is, uh, that is uh, in this text and how the Holy Spirit has communicated to us this morning. We ask that with the power of the Holy Spirit, we might go into all of Baltimore City and all of the world, that we might be laborers, that we might be workers, that we might make disciples of the broken and the hurting, the helpless, the harassed. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.